rest, right? Great chapter. I hope you guys are encouraged. I hope the week you guys remembered that as you're going through your week to find your rest in Jesus and uh, not in your own works and not in the way that you try to solve your own problems. Um, it was a great one. I love that part of Scripture. It was encouraging for us as well. And so uh, I just pray that it will continue to be encouraging for you guys. So getting back into Jesus' superior um, to the actual people position. We talked about Jesus being superior to the rest that was promised to Israel. And now this week, what's going to be uh, the highlight or what we're going to go over is Jesus is superior to the high priest. And why this is really important, especially in the Jewish mind, is because how is sin specifically going to be dealt with? Because all through their traditions and all through the, uh, the way that they're brought up and, and what God's law had said is that the high priest was the ultimate. I mean, that was, you know, once a year he would go and atone for the sins that maybe were done in ignorance um, and, and just for all of Israel. So it was a very important role that needed to be fulfilled. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews really wants to show them that Jesus Christ is superior to even the position of high priest and that he even is our high priest. Um, later on, we'll study through um, some of the other things like uh, the tabernacle and how that's symbolic uh, of the process and all that. We'll go through the priesthood and how Jesus is superior to that. Really neat parts. So tonight's going to be kind of limited. We're not going to go through the whole process. We'll go through some of the stuff. There's um, in these, uh, we're going to go through the end of four and then the first part of chapter five. But in each one of these, it's, uh, it's pointing to some of the priesthood uh, responsibilities which I really want to go over later because they actually hit him a lot more in the end of chapter 6. And then also it keeps going back to the order of Melchizedek. And we're not going to talk too much about that tonight because also there's a whole other section. It's also in, in chapter 6 and in in a little bit of 7 that talks more about Melchizedek. And so we'll really get into him and who he was and why that's so important for Jesus Christ. So all of those are mentioned in here. We're not going to go too much over it, but we will come back to those later on when we start studying Melchizedek. This chapter definitely, especially five, is, is kind of, I don't know who wrote it, but they were all over the place on this chapter. It was like they hit some points, but then they'd also bring those points back in here. So there's going to be a lot of jumping around and, and going to verses that we already read and, and going into ones that we haven't read. So we'll see if it all makes sense by the end of it. Just remember the main point, Jesus is superior to high priest, all right? And we'll be good. So let's go ahead and read chapter 4, 14 through 16. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Lord, we just want to thank you so much for declaring exactly your position as high priest. And uh, not just high priest, but the great high priest. Um, something that's never been given to another man. And Lord, we just really want to learn more about what it is that you, you do for us in heaven. Um, how you sympathize with us, Lord. And so I just pray that you just teach us through your scriptures tonight about what it means to be high priest. And uh, Lord, that we could just take some application and, and, and really... Uh, look to you as our high priest and how we can go boldly to your throne of grace and how awesome that is, how special it is for us, especially being Gentiles, that we have that access to that very holy place, Lord. And so we just thank you so much for your process and what you had to do to get us to that point, Lord, and what you gave up so that we could have this relationship with you, Lord. And we just want to praise you for that. And so I just ask you to just speak through me and uh, just use me in whatever way, Lord, and, and that you would just teach us through your word. And then we pray, amen. All right, so 
the high priest. Let's just look at it real quick. Um, you guys, in your own time, if you want to go study it out, Leviticus 9 is the first place that it starts talking about the priesthood and what the priesthood consisted of. And then in Leviticus 16, it talks about the Day of Atonement. And a really important day, especially because that's when the high priest, his main role came in, even though he was working all year long in, in what he was doing, but that was his main day where he got to shine, you know. So Aaron, we know, was the first high priest. Uh, he led the other priests uh, from the tribe of the Levites, Levi, the sons of Levi. Um, the high priest, what his main purpose, what he kind of did was he offered the people's sacrifices and their gifts before the Lord, and that was an annual thing. It was all year long he was doing, I guess it wasn't annual, it was all year long he was doing that for the people and, and offering sin sacrifices for the people as well. It wasn't just built up to the Day of Atonement and then that's when it all happened. It was during that time if you committed a sin, well, there was you know, the law that you could go to and see, okay, I need to give up two of my doves because of what I did. And then you take it into the priests, and, and they deal with it in the way that God asked them to do. Uh, they cleanse the tabernacle and the temple, you know, with the blood. And that would happen a lot on the Day of Atonement. Um, and then once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies, into that last part of the temple. And if you guys don't know the tabernacle or the temple, we'll, we'll look mainly at the tabernacle, because that was the first thing that was given and, and set up with Moses, is this place where it was a tent, that's a tabernacle. It had a, a fence that was around the outside of it, so you couldn't see in there. And then it had a building on the inside of that. And what would happen is that you had, a, you had a, a basin that was out in front and you had these butchering tables that were also out in front, out in the main yard before you even get in there. And then you would go inside of this, this tent and they would have a table of showbread. They would have the candlestick that you've probably seen, you know, and then uh, they would have the altar of incense right before this big veil. And then behind the veil was the Holy of Holies. And that was where God, his mercy seat was, or his throne of mercy that's where the Ark of the Covenant, you guys have heard that. If you've seen Indiana Jones, that's where that was. It was back behind that veil. And there's only one time a year that the, whole, the high priest could even go back there and be in the presence of God. And only one time a year. And so it was a very special thing. It was very important. It was taken very serious. And so that was one of the things that the high priest would do. Um, it was definitely one of the most important days for Israel. Uh, what the priest, the high priest had to do to even get into there is that he had to have a full-on bull sacrifice for himself. This wasn't for Israel. Sometimes people think that it had to be the cow was, or the bull was sacrificed for Israel, and then this guy had a goat. But what would happen is that he had to have a bull sacrificed for him. He would go in there to the Holy of Holies, and he'd take and, uh, the blood from the bull, and seven times he'd put it on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was basically the top of the Ark of the Covenant with two cherubim, and they had like their wings pointing at each other. The pictures they usually show on Google and stuff is pretty accurate to what the Bible describes it as. And so the seven times you flick the, or put the, the, the blood there, and it was just a neat picture. I mean, if you guys ever can do a cool study about that and go look at it, it's just, if you guys know what's in the Ark of the Covenant, it was the, the laws of Moses, it was the rod of, of uh, uh, Aaron. Yeah, I almost said Moses. <laughs> I knew it wasn't right. And then uh, the manna. That's what the other, so those three things in there. But representing God's, what he'd done, and especially with the law, and looking at the law being in there, is that this blood was over the top of that. Like it was covered, like it was taken care of, just pointing forward to Jesus Christ with that uh, symbolism that was there. And uh, so after he would do the bull sacrifice, then they would give two goats, okay? One of the goats was sacrificed for Israel, the atonement. And then another one they would place their hands on, and it was symbolic of putting the sins of Israel on that goat, and then they would take it out in the wilderness 
and hope it would never return because it was symbolizing the sins would go away forever. You can imagine their apprehension if all of a sudden it shows back up at camp. You're like, <laughs> great. <laughs> so a lot of them think that they actually backed them off of a cliff and, and kind of tried to make sure that they didn't ever come back because um, that would be bad, you know, if, you know, whoever ends up not taking the goat far enough away. But, so that's what the high priest did. And then one of the neat things that he did too is that the high priest, you guys know, usually you've seen pictures of what he looks like. He's got his turban, he's got a lot of beautiful colors on him, he's got the breastplate that has all the, the different stones on it, and, and he's really dressed up very kingly. It's very, you know, majestic in how he's dressed up. That's throughout the whole year, but on the Day of Atonement, he actually goes and he takes those garments off and he puts on linens. And so he goes in and he's just in white linens. And it's just so neat, the symbolism. We'll go through that in a little bit and just talking about even Jesus Christ and how that was done and, and him being our high priest and going in for that atonement. So that's a little bit of background. I know it's really quick of what the high priest was about. If you guys want to study it more, definitely go to Leviticus 9 and 16. And in between there too, there's a lot of different uh, examples of what sacrifices they had to do. And uh, it actually, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting stuff to go through if you can handle it for a little bit. It does get kind of monotonous after a little while, so you got to break it up. So looking back at Hebrews in verse 14 of chapter 4, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And this is one of those places that right there, a title is given to Jesus that's not been given to any other person. He's being related to as the high priest, but it says the great high priest. Very important because no other man has ever taken that title. And right away, the writer wants to show them that this is how much superior Jesus Christ is to just the normal high priest or even Aaron, is because he's the great high priest. And then it gives the other place that says that he's superior because in the place that he's given, he's passed through the heavens. If you guys know anything about the tabernacle, it was four layers of cloths that were put over the top of the tabernacle. And uh, very interesting. We'll go through more of that when we go through the tabernacle and how Jesus is superior to that. But it completely points to Jesus. But on the inside, the very first layer that they'd always put on when they'd move it and they'd cover it, the first layer it was the most beautiful one. It was the one that had the cherub and it had gold woven into it. It had all these beautiful colors in this thing. So when the priest would walk into the actual tent to go and, and start doing the, you know, his stuff that he had to do in there, all of his works, he'd come in there and it, was just, it would look like heaven. It was just all these beautiful things in there, and it was supposed to be representative of that. And when you look at this, and if you have the Jewish mindset of like what the temple looks like on the inside, and with the tabernacle, they all knew what it was, because they had the scriptures to point out and say what it looked like. Then you see Jesus passing through heaven. It's like, here's the high priest on his way to the mercy seat, you know, on his way to do that atonement that was promised. And so Jesus passed through the heavens, and then it gives him the title. It says, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, we know that that name is Savior. And giving him that name, and then Son of God points to his deity. So right even in that verse, in verse 14, it's giving a whole bunch of things that show that Jesus Christ is definitely superior to any man that has held this position. And then in verse, or in the very last part of that, it says, and because of all this, let us hold fast our confession. Because of who Jesus Christ is, let us hold, hold fast to the confession of that grace and that mercy that's promised through him, right? Knowing that this is the position he holds and using that word, and, and I know that Paul used to use it a lot, but he'd use a lot of terms, and whoever this writer was, maybe Paul, 
with the, the terms being used from a ship. And that hold fast is, is holding fast is what they would say when you're going through a storm. I don't know if you guys have seen the, what is that one? Master and Commander? Great movie. The crazy guy, he shows his knuckles and it says hold fast. Every time I read in the Bible, hold fast, I'm thinking about this crazy old man showing his knuckles and like, go grab onto something because it's going to get crazy. So in this, every time you're going through some storm or whatever, you guys hold fast to who Jesus Christ is. And even as you remember that, to hold fast to our confession, remember that because the rest of this verse and into chapter 5 is going to show us, like, who do we have in him? What does it mean by him being the, the high priest and what confidence we can have in him? And it is something we can definitely hold fast to. Now, in verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we touched a little bit on this when we were back in chapter 2 of verse 17, and almost says the same thing. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful, high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I think it's awesome that God had this planned out, that he didn't send like we've talk, uh, send like we talked about before, an angel or, or some kind of a being that had no relation to mankind. That, okay, yeah, okay, we have this high priest, but he can't identify with us. Because that was one thing with Israel is that they have Aaron and they have the priesthood. They knew that they were just men as well. And even with that huge example of them having to sacrifice a bull on the Day of Atonement compared to a little goat, it's showing like, you know, they have problems too. And they can go in there and, and it's all about God. They're going in before God to take that blood in there to cover up those sins. And so they needed, I mean, as we as, as men need to see that, men and women, we need to see that, that Jesus Christ can also relate and he sympathizes with us. And it also says later on that he has compassion on us because of that. Because he was a man and because he had to deal with the same things that you guys are dealing with every day. And I would even say that it was even to another level. Because you guys know in your own lives, as you walk through this life and you're doing great on something, it's a sin that you've been dealing with. And finally, it feels like you've just kicked it. Like you're good because God has completely taken that sin out of your life. And then all of a sudden some temptation comes up to maybe return to that. And it gets even more extreme than it was before that temptation. Like it escalates as the further you get away from it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is getting tough. Now imagine Jesus that's never done any of that in his human body. The temptation was great for him. It was a huge deal. And so don't ever take it lightly that, oh, it's because Jesus Christ is God. And so therefore, how could he really relate with me? It says right here, and it goes through, there's three different verses just here in Hebrews in these chapters that talk about he understands because he had to go through it. And it never once says that, but because he was God, he didn't do it. It says actually he learned obedience through suffering, which is very human. And so you get to have that in that humanity that's in Jesus Christ so you can hold on to it and not just write it off as, oh, it's God, so you know, it works out for him. How is it going to work out for me? So for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Look over in Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. Isaiah 53, verse 3. You guys know this, this, this part of Scripture. I mean, this is one of those messianic prophecies. Um, and it's one of my favorites because it just nails exactly what Jesus Christ, but it really shows you a little bit of background there. And so in Isaiah 53, Three, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Just to see that's what he's gone through, that he can sympathize with us. I mean, even the stuff that he had to bear because of us and because of our sin. And that last little part where it says, yet without sin. So he was tempted, or he had to go through all that. He had a weakness that was there, but it says, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Which he had to be without sin, of course, because then later on in 5.9 it says that he's going to be the author of eternal salvation to those of us who, believe, who, who obey. And getting to see that he has to go through that process, but then he has to all come, also come out yet without sin, of course, because otherwise the sacrifice is not going to be accepted. Then it becomes just another man. Then he can never attain to what needed to happen and have that great high priest to end it for once and for all, that whole process that had to take place. And in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't need to go there, but it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And you guys know this verse, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, therefore, let us come boldly. And when it talks about coming before him boldly, you've got to remember, okay, the process of a high priest, and especially in the mind of a Jewish person, is that you do not go to the Holy of Holies. That is not your place. You are absolutely not allowed to go there. There is only one guy on the earth at a time that's allowed to go into that place once a year. It's a very serious thing. It's very dedicated and, and specific. And it really eliminates what this kind of relationship can between, be between you and God. And so with their mindset, it's a very holy thing, and it's very pointed on this one person being able to do that. And so, of course, to say to the Jewish mind, be bold about going there, it's kind of like they were shy about it. Because it's something that's never been crossed before. You don't go there. You don't go on the other side of that veil. I mean, they tie a rope to your leg for a purpose. You know, if you're going in there and you're messed up, you're going to get dragged out because you're dead. Like, you just don't do that. And especially if you're not of that priestly line. But with Jesus coming and, his, and because of who he is and he was without sin, it says, let us there come, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now that's interesting that it says the throne of grace because what was in the Holy of Holies? It was the mercy seat, right? It was where God sat. So we could say the throne of mercy, which that's what they would get. They would get the mercy. They would get um, actually not get what they deserved, right? That's mercy. So they were supposed to be punished to death, and, and, and because they were going and obeying God's law and what they had to do and bringing that blood atonement in there, he was not slaying them because he saw it. It was a covering of the sin, and so he had the mercy that was being poured out. But now it's so interesting that this writer throws in there a different term for him. And he throws, let's come boldly to the throne of grace, where I'm going to give you stuff that you don't deserve. No longer is it I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, with something that you've never worked for. Because again, in the law, it was always looked at as something to work for, right? So if they would have put that back in there and said, come to the throne of mercy, well, that would just go back to the whole process of what they've had to do before, and how they had to go through the process to get into that area. And so it would have been very confusing. But throwing that new term in there, 
and staying in the throne of grace, it completely opens up another door. And even for us, it should be a great thing because now we get to go in boldly before Jesus Christ, who is sitting on the throne of grace. And we get to go in there, and then it comes back at the very end of that, that verse, and it says that we may obtain what? It's not like mercy's thrown out the window and grace is all that we receive anymore because fortunately we still do wrong and we still should be, you know, have death on us. But he says it's given mercy and grace in that last part. It says that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now here's a cool thing and how I keep going back to that it was a very pointed day, very specific person that had to do this. Boldly, we all can go in there and it says... When? And find grace to help in time of need. It does not say, and only on this day, in whatever, it was in between, it was around this time of year, actually, the Day of Atonement. But it's any time. It's that we get to go in there, and it's not a whole process that we need to be built up and, and make sure we have all of our ducks in a row and make sure we have all the sin out of our life before we can come to the throne of grace. That's why it's called the throne of grace. I don't know how many times I've had people tell me, I'm not going to come to church yet because I'm not ready to go yet. I need to clean up my life more. And it's like, well, either that's an excuse (laughs) or you really do feel that way. And it's sad that you would feel that way because you have to know that he died for you while you're a sinner. And it just goes back, and, and that's why it's so important, the wording that's used there, is because we can come to his throne of grace and not be prepared in our own works to be perfect before him so that he will give us that mercy, that we can attain that mercy and that he will find that grace that it talks about. It's like, guys, just go before him. And especially in your time of need. So right now in your life, so the application we draw from this is, is there a time of need in your guys' life? Is there a time that you, you're, you're overwhelmed with what's going on? And it could be different, all kinds of things. It could be overwhelmed by relationships. It could be overwhelmed by responsibility. It could be overwhelmed by work by emotion. I mean, there's, you guys know what's going on right now in your own lives. I'm not going to be able to hit every point, but just think about what's going on there. What is my time of need right now? And am I going boldly before him to obtain that grace, to find that grace that he wants to give me? It's an easy question. Okay, now what does that mean? Okay, I need to sit down and pray and like, God, where's this throne at? Because I'm looking, I don't know where it is. I mean, what street's it on? You guys go back to the Word of God. That's why in the context right there, that's why in verses 12 and 13 are right there. Again, like we talked about last week, the rest that we find, he says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this isn't supposed to scare us. This isn't supposed to be one of those things like, oh, great, here's the God of the Old Testament coming after me again. It's just reassuring that here's where the power lies. Here's where you can't fool around. It is going to be straight to the point with God. You might be able to fool yourself or those around you and be a Christian and say all the right Christian things, but when it comes down to it, you're going to deal right before God. It's going to be done. It's going to be right down in the middle. And so let us come boldly to him. Chapter 5, make sure in my notes I'm ready to go on. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, uh, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes his, this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so, right here, talking about the high priest, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about Jesus right here. He's just talking about the regular high priest and, and what was going on, just reminding him, setting up for what he's about to say about Jesus Christ. And he's just reminding him, here's what the high priest looks like. So the high priest being appointed for men and things pertaining to God. And so when you look at that in that, going back to how he was clothed, throughout the year he was clothed in a very kingly, majestic way. I mean, it was really actually beautiful to look on. I mean, you can imagine all those stones, those 12 stones he had on his breastplate. You know, it was like, that in itself would be awesome. And then the way that everything was designed, I mean, it was very colorful. And then you put him out in the middle of the desert and it like even pops more. So this guy stood out. And he, what he was doing, he was basically representing God to the people, wasn't he, during that time? Taking sins in there, or I mean, taking the blood in there and dealing with things, giving gifts to God from the people. And he was really being God's ambassador, his representative appointed by God. And then the Day of Atonement would come. And like I said before, the garments were changed. And he was all in white. And then what that is, is that he's representing man before God. And man coming in as a servant. Because that's really what the clothing was like. I also find it interesting that we know in the scriptures it talks about the angels being dressed that way, right? As they're before God ministering to him. And then another one is that the saints in Revelation, where it talks about the saints are going to be dressed in that way. The martyrs are dressed that way. And it's just one of those things that before God, we know where our position is. And I love that God did that even with the high priest, this guy that's like one of the top guys in Israel, the one that's really looked at. He needs to go and dress as a servant before he goes before God that one time a year. And really putting it in perspective and showing uh, where his place was. In John 13, 3 through 5, if you guys want to flip over there real quick. This verse just really reminded me of what Jesus did. John 13. 3 through 5. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And I love that verse right there in verse 4 where he set his garments aside. I mean, that's the high priest right there setting his garments aside so that he could go deal with the atonement that needed to take place. Showing that servitude that Jesus had. Another place over in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
and those in heaven, and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of that obedience and him laying aside those garments and becoming that bondservant. Go back over to Hebrews. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. And again, not talking about Jesus, but talking about just a regular high priest. This is what the high priest, they wanted to associate that with and show this is why Jesus had to come as a man. Because also the high priest that would serve you guys before, the Israelites, he could have compassion on those because they're ignorant of the sin that they're doing or that they were going astray. Since he himself was subject to weakness as well. So be encouraged and perfect saint. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Because I, I find that it's so interesting because the whole thing he's doing here, he's associating what the role was to show that Jesus Christ is that same way. And to think of Jesus Christ as, of course, we know that he deals with those that are ignorant. That's what the whole Day of Atonement was set up because of the ignorance of, of Israel's sin. I mean, if they knew what they were doing a sin, they were supposed to go right in and deal with it before God. But this Day of Atonement was for that, all the sins that had been uh, committed and the, and the sins that had been done in ignorance as well. And then the next one is going astray. Even those ones that are going astray, walking away from Him. He has compassion. Which is so good and so nice to hear because we have so many people in our own families that are going astray. They know the truth. They're going astray, but yet it says that He has compassion on them. Do you guys know what compassion is? Passion is suffering. That's the original Greek. And then come is with. So with suffering. So it's kind of like coming alongside with that suffering heart. Just having that compassion on them. And to get to see that that's the high priest, that's one of the roles of the high priest is to have compassion on even those that are going astray. Where so many times with us, and this is a big deal with us, is that we as sinners, usually we're not compassionate with other sinners, are we? I mean, even look at David. You know, when Samuel comes to him, he talks about this story about this guy getting his land robbed and everything. What did David do? Oh, I have so much compassion on him. He's like, oh, this guy needs to be slaughtered. And then he's like, well, that's you. <laughs> so many times in the scriptures, we've seen examples of no compassion poured out on another sinner. It's something that we do not give out at all, usually, if we do. That as soon as we see another brother or sister sinning, it's kind of like, what is wrong with those people? They should know better by now. You know, as we swing around with this plank that's knocking everybody else on their head. Look out, it's coming at you. One of those things that we need to really be careful is because here's Jesus Christ that had the authority to be able to do that, but yet he's even compassionate about those that are going astray. And I think that his love is best demonstrated in Paul and how he dealt with the church in Corinth. And I know you guys think I'm a broken record with this, but it's so surprising to me how Paul deals with that church. And the biggest thing about it is because there's so many times that we are so quick to judge the churches around us in, this, in our community right here. When they're nothing close to the church of Corinth. I mean, if the church of Corinth was in this town, we would absolutely have nothing to do with it except for talk bad about it every time we're together. That's as far as we'd go. But here's Paul coming in with his compassion on a church that's gone astray to bring them back to him. So you get to see that, and even in the story of the shepherd, Right? Here's this one sheep that's gone astray. There's a great man that got up here and taught about that one night. About that one sheep going away and he's going to take and invest that time in going after that one sheep. That one that's gone astray. 
Just the compassion Jesus shows for us. Isn't it cool? Don't let the enemy enter in there and say, oh, you've strayed too far. Therefore, God has no longer a work that needs to be done in your life. You've been cast off. You've gone too far. He wants nothing to do with you. Now he's just going to bring a bunch of things in your life. They're going to be bad, and so you're going to credit that, oh, well, I did this wrong, so therefore I deserve it. That's the enemy, guys. That's the enemy. If he's chasing after us, the compassion for those of us that have even gone astray or we've done sin in our ignorance, that's not how he works. That's not our Jesus. Don't let the enemy lie to you and even lie to your family members. In verse 3, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And so the high priest was a sinner. And so he, along with the people, also had to sacrifice for his sins. This is one of the biggest reasons that I do not believe in confession to a priest. Is because right here in this section, what it's talking about is going to a man that's also a sinner so that he can go before you to God. So basically your mediator between you and God. That was the old system. That's the way that it used to work with the priest. And we see that. That's how God had lined it up. But the thing is, when the throne of grace appeared, when Jesus Christ sat down in that, that work was done. So now we come boldly to him, and he becomes our mediator. There's a great verse even to show some of your friends that still believe that they have to go and confess this to another sinner. It's over in 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And so many times I've taken people here because they feel that because of the pressure that's been put on them or because of the way that they've been told this is what the scriptures read is that you have to go to this holy man, a priest, and you have to sit down and confess your sins throughout the week or whatever, and then he'll tell you what you need to go do so you can get right with God. And what a sad system, because all it's doing is putting power of men over another man. And it's not what God had designed. It's not the way that he wants it, especially now. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, is a perfect verse that says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men and the man Christ Jesus. And verse 6 is the reason why he gets to be my mediator. This is the reason why no other man is going to be my mediator is because in verse 6 it says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's no man out there that has died for my sins and is sinless that I'm going to go to and confess my sins so that he can go be my mediator. That's been done away with. No longer is it a sinful man that goes before God on account of another sinful man. Now you get to go before the sinless, Jesus Christ, and he's the one that deals with it. Because he brought that atonement. Verses, back over to Hebrews. Verses 4 through the end of the chapter. Now what's going to happen in these parts of the scripture, it really talks about where is this call from. And showing that Jesus Christ was calling this, that Jesus didn't just come and say, hey, I am the great high priest. So in verse 4 it says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God. We're going to see that twice. Just as Aaron was. In verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in verse 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, in verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so absolutely, to have that position as high priest, it is one that is called by God. We see that in verse 10 and also in verse 4, that he's called by God. He didn't glorify himself in verse 5. No man can put himself in that position. We see Saul, if you guys are taking notes, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul decided because Samuel was taking too much time, Saul decided he's going to go get his sacrifice that he's waiting for Samuel to come and do. And so what ends up happening is that Saul offers this sacrifice and Samuel shows up and says, what in the world have you done? This is not a good thing that's happened. And because of what you've done, your kingdom will not keep going anymore. It's done. And that's why Saul's line stopped right there as far as being king over Israel. Is because of him going in there and trying to do the role of what a high priest would do. And then another one is Korah and his followers. And what they wanted is they wanted Moses and Aaron's position. They didn't see how they had merited that position. And they thought they could do better. Excuse me. And so they wanted that position, so they called up a council. They tried to get it. And Moses said, you know what? It's shame on you guys for what you're doing. God's going to judge you. And the earth opened up and swallowed them, didn't it? All of those guys. That had been scary. I would have been scared out of my mind. So here's some other guys trying to take that position that God had given to Aaron and to Moses on how they're supposed to go before him. And it wasn't for them. It was who God appointed. That was in number 16. And then the last example I have is King Uzziah, where he entered, he was all excited, and he entered in to burn incense in the temple, which was not his role. He was a king. He wasn't allowed to do that. And so what ends up happening is that God gave him leprosy. And that's in Second Chronicles 26. And so we see that it's very serious if a man tried to override God's call. A very serious, serious offense. And so Jesus, and that's why in the Jewish mind, there's absolutely no way I could even think if I was stuck in that way is how is this guy all of a sudden coming in and calling himself a high priest? He's not a Levite. He's not from that tribe. And we know from these examples in the Old Testament that it was a bad thing if you tried to take that position or do anything in there without being of that line. And so that's why he has to explain it and talk to them that he was called by God. Here's the verses that say, Today you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he says that you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And like I said, we'll talk about more of the significance of that guy. So in verse 5, remember, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but, he was all, but it was said to him, Remember who else tried to glorify themselves in heaven? Lucifer, right? Lucifer tried to glorify himself, and what happened? He got kicked out of heaven. He was not called to be that other position that he was seeking after. He was called to be the worship leader. And Justin left, so I can't make any jokes about that. <laughs> But he was kicked out, and the thing was that he was not called to that. He wanted to glorify himself, and what ends up happening is that God kicks him out. He, he decides that for himself to take in. He goes with a third of the other angels. Not a good example to follow. And then in verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, and this is what it's going back to, is it's going back to the garden. 
I mean, if you guys didn't see that, it sounds a lot like it. Well, it is referencing back to what was going on in the garden because it wants to set it up for verse 8 and talking about the obedience. So it's speaking of him going in the garden, and it's such a significant area because this is one of those places that we see Jesus and his burden. I think Jesus is so, I don't know what the word you'd use, but just as he walks throughout and all the things that are accounted to him and the things that are recorded of him, you don't ever see this huge pressure on him. It talks about him having compassion on the multitudes, you know, and going along with that. And then Jesus wept. Um, his compassion over his friend dying, Lazarus. You get to see these little ones, but where it's Jesus breaking down, you get to see this, this, this torment that's about to take place on him. And he knows what's coming. It isn't just this death that he's afraid of. And you guys have to understand that because there was tons of martyrs. There was tons of other guys that were willing to go um, if you guys haven't ever read the Fox uh, uh, Book of Martyrs, powerful stuff. I mean, it, it's sad what happened to those guys, but I mean, like one of the guys was being born at the stake, and the whole time he's just sitting there and he's just praising God as he's dying. And a horrible example, but the thing was, it was pointing out that there wasn't this huge grief that was there, not what was shown on Jesus. And so a lot of people will say that it's because of the suffering he was about to endure. That's why he was going through this grieving process. It wasn't because of that. It was the separation he was going to have and the whole sins of the world be put on him. That's a big deal. That's something we'll never experience. And no martyr has ever experienced. And so referring back to that with his cries and his tears, uh, he was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his godly fear. Now he was heard, right? But the decision wasn't changed. And in the end of that whole conversation, when he's having with the Father, he says, you know what? Not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's where that in obedience in verse 8 steps in. It says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. How in the world does the Son of God learn obedience? When I was sitting there, I'm looking at that verse, and I'm like, this does not make any sense, because how does Jesus learn obedience? It's one of those things that we already credit it to him. Well, it's Jesus, so he already knew obedience. Well, it's just like any son and how any son would learn obedience. They listen to what their father has to say. They obey. They receive blessing because of it. You know, they end up not getting hit by a car. Blessing. You know, <laughs> they end up getting to have all their fingers. Blessing. Table saw, right? All these things that they listen to the instruction that happens and they obey or they're told not to do this or that, they obey. Now with us, the difference is here. And this is why we don't really understand it sometimes, because we figure that obedience has to be learned through disobedience. Like, oh, I didn't obey that time, so next time I'm definitely going to obey because that did not work out well for me. So I'll obey then. That's not what it's talking about. Jesus learned obedience because of what he was walking through and getting to apply himself to and seeing what the Father was asking and the will of the Father and obeying that will and seeing the return on that. As a man, he got to see and he learned obedience and what that was to walk in it. And I think it's very interesting by, you know, how he goes and talks about through his suffering and talking about that cross. And then verse 9, he says, and having been perfected, having been perfected. And that's another one of those ones that we think, well, Jesus was already perfect. He had to be tested, right? We would have never known that Jesus was perfect if he was never tempted. And if we knew he didn't have the same weakness as, as far as like the temptation, but not sinning, we would have never known that. I mean, how would you even know that he would be perfect if there's nothing to line it up with? But we know that, that and that's what it's talking about there, having been perfected. It's basically that he was represented as perfect, being shown to be perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Whoever wrote this, I love that wording there. Because it's talking about what Jesus wrote for us. 
that being perfected in obedience, that now he becomes the author of salvation. The book needed to be written, and Jesus was just the one to do it. That he got to write with salvation. And I find it so interesting as I was sitting here pondering, I'm like, Lord, teach me more about what it is to be the author of salvation, because that means that you're the one that's penned it, you're the one that's written it out so that we can read that. And it's something we can take very lightly because we're like, yeah, I got salvation, that's great, move on. Now I want to know what, what things do I get? What comes with the salvation? But just stop and look at this. And if you think about things being written out that were from God, you think automatically Ten Commandments, right? At least I did. Ten Commandments were written and then they were broken as soon as they were written. It comes right down off the mountain and they're already breaking these commandments that they didn't even get to hear yet. And he ends up getting upset, throws them down, has to go write some more. And so then he ends, what happens is that these commandments are being broken, and so then enters in this whole system of the priesthood, right? The high priest has to step in because now there needs to be atonement for the sins that are being done. For this law, this, this written law that's being broken, you have to now have this high priest to come in and atone for those sins and atone for what's being broken. And then it comes to Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. That's where I think this author thing is so interesting because in the mind of the Jew, here's these things written down, and then you have the ultimate author step in and say, boom, it's done. Here's the new covenant. Here's the law of grace. And so Jesus steps in as the great high priest who wrote eternal salvation to those who obey him. No longer is it obedience to this law in that sense of we're going to gain favor or we're going to have in this right place, but it's this obedience to Jesus Christ. And we know that he's already made that for us to walk in, right? It's an excellent thing that we get to be there. And so he is the author of that salvation. And then in verse 10, called by God again as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I'll just say this real quick about Melchizedek. He was a guy in the Old Testament. Um, later on, we'll learn that Abraham's the one that had the dealings with him. If you guys want to read ahead, go for it. It's over in uh, six thirteen through 20 and then in the first part of chapter 7. And it talks about uh, Abraham tithing to him, showing that Melchizedek was more than Abraham. And what ends up happening is Melchizedek was a, both a king and a priest, which was a big deal for the Jewish mind because they couldn't get over that. How could he call him king and yet call him high priest at the same time? Because, boom, we got you right there. You can't be the both of them. And so that's why this example Melchizedek has been brought up, is that, that who's Jesus? that's Jesus. That's representing Jesus. And then in verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so when he's going to go into talking about Melchizedek, it's going to be hard for them to understand because already they're dull of hearing. Not hard of hearing. It's not like they're not listening. They're dull of hearing, which means that they've heard it so many times that now it's kind of like, eh, this is dull. Just think about a pencil being written over and over again, and then you've got to go sharpen it again. And I think that's a very good warning for us, even in closing it out, is because being dull of hearing, for those of you that are sleeping right now, you can go ahead and wake up, yeah. This is the dull of hearing part, okay? <laughs> no, but sometimes you guys know that when we get into the scriptures or we've heard somebody teach over and over again, and we've heard that same voice, we've heard maybe those same stories, those, those things about Costa Rica over and over again that you're sick of, just the, the things you get to hear all the time, remember that the word of God is in front of you and it's being gone through. Don't look at the person that's doing it. Don't look at that stuff. Don't, don't get fixed on that. Don't become dull of hearing. The Word of God, and we can go back to verse 12 of chapter 4, and it's living and powerful, isn't it? And if we actually believe that, then every time that the Word of God is opened up, 
we as mature Christians should be able to dive into it and get to see what God's showing us. So don't ever get into the mindset of, I don't like this teacher, I'm not going to go because this person's teaching, or I don't want to go to this conference because these people are teaching. Hey, the Word of God's going to be opened up. And it's our responsibility to get into that and look at it and see, yeah, you know what? This can affect my life because I do believe that it's living and powerful. And so, Lord, we just want to dive into your word each time, Lord, and uh, learn from it. And just tonight as we go through or went through the, the part about you being our high priest, Lord, we do want to come boldly before you and remember that you sit on the throne of grace. And you have that new covenant with us, Lord, and we just thank you so much for what you had to go through, especially that time that you showed us in the garden of, of just where your heart was and how it even affected your, your body physically, Lord. Um, you know, crying that blood, and we can just see the pressure that was on you, and we just thank you so much for your obedience. That we get to live in that, Lord, and we just ask that you would show us, as we have to walk through different sufferings in our life, Lord, that we could be obedient to you. And, uh, Lord, that we could learn from that. We can learn from the suffering that you've given us, that we can encourage others, because we know through that suffering that you went through, that obedience that you proved, Lord, that's, uh, that's how you get to be our high priest and relate to us. And so we just ask that you'd use those things in our lives that we're suffering through, that you'd bring people in our life, lives that we could uh, speak to, that we could comfort, and we could use those situations, Lord. I know it's such an encouragement when we get to have that happen and get to see somebody else touched by you because of what we've had to go through. And so we ask that we have that happen, and I just pray for these guys this week that the things that they come up across, uh, the, the discussions they have about politics or, or life or, or worldview, Lord, that you would give them boldness to speak about your truth. Lord, that we would be eager to speak about you, that we'd be excited about you, that we'd play the praises, the music, Lord, so that others could hear and to show them that we have no shame. And that, Lord, we just can't wait to be with you. And we just ask that you just come quickly because this is getting to look pretty bad, all these choices that are around us, Lord, and the people that are turning the way that they're turning, Lord. And so as we're here in this last little bit of time, Lord, waiting for you, I pray that you just give us the strength and the boldness that we need just to be your servants and your light in the community, Lord, and in our families. And we just thank you for your word and it's powerful and living. In your name I pray, amen.